Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Let's talk about the effect of the ongoing trade war between the U.S. and China on metals that are used for industrial purposes, in particular steel. Joining us now from Bangkok is Gordon Johnson, Managing Director at Vertical Group, uh, who is in Bangkok to present at a conference, but is taking time out to join us today. Thank you so much, uh, Gordon, for being with us. I want us to talk about steel uh, because it is used in so much construction, and that is some areas that would take a hit, potentially, uh, especially in China, given the slowdown there and in light of the trade war. So what do you see there? We're seeing uh, about a 5% decline so far year to date in steel. How much further do we have? Yes, yeah, so we think there's significant downside uh, for steel prices. And if you look at just the data points, if you look at the major um, economies and specifically PMIs, 67% of the major economy PMIs are in contraction right now, and specifically with China. And the reason why China is so important, they consume 50% of the world still. So as goes China, as goes global steel prices. And if you look at the Caxon PMI, the China official PMI, or the Hong Kong PMI, all of them are in contraction right now, and that's despite stimulus efforts significant stimulus efforts from China recently. It's not working anymore. And the reason is because the debt service is so high, so they have to stimulate even more just to run, uh, you know, they basically keep running on the same treadmill. So the last thing we'd say is, um, you know, China is clearly devaluing their currency. So that means they're going to export their devaluation or depreciation to the rest of the world. And keep in mind, remember, in 2015 and the first quarter of 16, when China's currency devalued, uh, we had the great bulk commodity scare where you had steel prices really collapse down to the $364 per short-term level. And we think we're headed back to those levels. Not there yet. So, Gordon, uh, bearish on the uh, demand side of the equation, talk to us about the supply side of steel globally. Yeah, so that's a great question. So with Trump's tariffs, we saw a unprecedented spike in steel prices in the U.S. Steel prices in the U.S. were sub $500. Trump implemented the tariffs. They went up to nine, you know, just under $900 per short ton. Um, and on that increase in prices, a lot of U.S. steel mills decided they were going to announce capacity additions. So you have all these capacity additions that have been announced. But now if you look at the U.S. market, whether it's agriculture, which is in a state of um, uh, disarray, um, the energy sector, which is also suffering, uh, and clearly autos, which is a key uh, driver of demand for steel, which is suffering. The problem is U.S. still can't implement a trade case against JSW in Ohio. So this still is being added, and there's nothing the U.S. steel mills can do other than cut capacity. And you're seeing that from some of the blast furnace guys, but you're not seeing it from the EAF guys. So, again, we see big problems ahead. Look, it's, it's really driven by China because China drives U.S. steel prices. Um, but you also have this dynamic in the U.S. where you have capacity that's being added that, you know, these guys can't issue trade cases against each other. So it's kind of backfired in a way, if you will. So what does this mean for the investment case? I mean, in terms of how do you position around this? Right. So we, we think that, um, you know, there's going to be further downside uh, for a lot of stocks. Think about this, right? We were presenting, a, we're doing two presentations at this conference. If you look at from the early 80s, 80s until 2004, iron ore prices averaged between $25 and $35 uh, per metric ton. Iron ore prices are sitting at $82 right now. 
the point is, what happened in 2004 is the Chinese economy had a debt-to-GDP ratio of 100%. It's now above 300%. A lot of that debt went to build empty office buildings to the sky, uh, which are very still intensive. The point is, once we mean revert back to where China was pre-2004, given they consume such a large percent of the world still, we think iron ore prices probably dropped back down to those levels. Iron ore and coking coal are used to make steel. So when you have iron ore and coking coal prices, coking coal prices down 25% since April, um, revert back down to the levels they were pre-China stimulus, we think you're also going to have steel prices revert back down to levels that I think people don't see as possible today. So we think the way to position um, is to be short in general still in iron ore stocks. So it's interesting, Gordon, as I look at uh, on the Bloomberg terminal, the ANR function for your coverage, I see one buy, two holds, and 10 sells. So I think I understand the bear case that you're suggesting here, um, been pretty consistent. Why the buy on United States Steel? What's different about those guys? Well, we, had a, we have a buy on United States Steel because, um, you know, uh, about a month ago, um, you know, we thought that the cut in capacity from U.S. still, as well as um, AKS, um, was going to drive some upside sentiment in the space, and it did. Um, but, you know, since we've made that call, you had that kind of short-term positivity, um, and, and now you're seeing the negativity seep back in. So um, still buy-rated, uh, but, um, you know, uh, the negativity is starting to outweigh, um, you know, those, those, those capacity cuts. So how much is your sort of base case disrupted if there is some sort of trade agreement between the U.S. and China? Yeah, so, I mean, there will clearly be a knee-jerk effect um, if there's a trade agreement between the U.S. and China. Um, but we think this is structural. Uh, the real issue here is not a, a trade war between the U.S. and China. We think the real issue here is specifically China. Um, if you think about this, right, if you look at trailing 12-month um, uh, liquidity to GDP in China, um, in 2014 and 15, that ratio declined 63 basis points, and that basically was the precursor to the big bulk commodity scare we had in the second half uh, of 15 and the first quarter of 16. In 2018, that ratio is down 83 basis points, meaning liquidity in China is just not there as it used to be. And we think that is the major driver of global bulk commodity prices. Um, and if you look at the credit that's being extended in China, it's just not enough. You need about $2 trillion per month in credit. You know, in July, you had just $1 trillion of credit extended. China's just not issuing enough credit to drive the, um, uh, you know, the build-out of these, you know, construction, essentially, whether it's bad investment or good investment. We think it's bad. Uh, they're just not issuing the credit needed to drive that build-out. So we think China's the real driver. Again, a U.S. trade war um, uh, you know, um, agreement, we think will cause a knee-jerk reaction, but we think this structural decline in bulk commodity prices um, is the name of the game. Gordon Johnson, thank you so much. Uh, Gordon Johnson's a managing director at Vertical Group, talking to us about the steel business, calling in from Bangkok, where he's attending a graphite electrode conference. That sounds interesting, I guess, if you're into that whole metals thing. The yield curve uh, is inverted. We continue to have uncertainty persisting around the continued, uh, continued trade tension. So the question for a lot of investors is, 
do the confluence of these events kind of suggest that a recession might be in the offing for the U.S. economy? To answer that question, we welcome our good friend Jim Paulson, chief investment strategist from the Luthold Group. Luthold Group has about $1.2 billion under management based in Minneapolis. Jim, thanks so much for joining us. So let's start off right away with your thoughts uh, about uh, what seems to be some growing talk about a recession over the next 12 months. Yeah. I have to say, Paul, I don't remember if we if we are headed imminently for recession. It's going to be one of the most widely anticipated and best forecasted ones we've ever had. Um, it, it's just so covered out there, uh, not only the media, but Wall Street commentary as well is just all over this. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, of the two events, I think we make far too much of the trade um, issue. I, I think it's a mild negative for the United States recovery, not a not a recovery killer. Um, and the yield curve uh, concerns me much more. I think the the, the signal that it's been so good historically is is frightening to me as an old old investment guy. But I think there's reasons to suspect the signal may be a little warped this time, given that we've screwed up monetary policy so badly in this cycle with quantitative easing and negative yields. Um, and if, if I go away from that, what I think doesn't get enough attention, Paul, is the amount of stimulus that's being devoted to this recovery now, not only here but globally. We've just had a you know tremendous amount. We, we worry about whether the Fed's going to cut rates a quarter point on the funds rate, but the the uh, 10-year Treasury yield has fallen from three and a quarter last October to 147 this morning. That's a drop of more than one half in most of the yield curve in the last nine months or ten months or so. Follow that up with the uh, the annual growth of the real money supply going from below one percent last year to about three and a half percent now, and follow it up with fiscal juice deficit federal deficits percent of GDP is one percent greater today than it was a little over a year ago. So we're getting three gun gooser here of stimulus that you normally only see in the pit of a recession. And it doesn't get much uh, much weight in people's outlooks. Normally, with this much stimulus, uh, with about a nine-month lag or a 12-month lag, you'd see a chorus of economists suggesting the economy is probably you know, poised to pick up. But you hardly hear anyone talk about that. I think it comes down, does fear freeze up the financial markets, uh, or does stimulus ultimately win? And I'm worried about a confidence freeze, but I think, uh, uh, the odds favor that stimulus is going to win, and I'm already seeing some evidence of pickup in the economy to, that might be starting to respond to the lagged impact of all this easing. So you're bullish on stocks? I still am. I still am, Lisa. I, I, or Paul, I, I believe that uh, uh, you know we've we've done a lot of things here since uh, last year that I think sort of rebuilds or helps the. Uh, helps the stock market, make, making it look a little more attractive. The current P.E. multiple now and the trailing P.E. multiple in the S&P 500 is below average in the last 30 years since 1990. The, uh, the competitive 10-year yield is less than half of what it was last October. So we've got a lower, much lower multiple and much lower competitive yield. Financial liquidity growth, that is the excess of M2 money growth over nominal GDP, just went positive for the first time in the second quarter since 2017. Um, 
the advance in the S&P this year is more broad-based, more sectors are participating as opposed to the concentrated nature of the advance last year. Um, overall, we've got, as I said, full-on policy support. We've got, we've eliminated the overheat pressures that we were struggling with last year. And I would argue that fear is very pronounced and prevalent. That is a wall of worry this year as opposed to what it was last year. So in many regards, um, I think the fundamentals have been improving in the last year while the market's been roughly flat. Earnings have slowly gone up and yields have come down. So, um, Jim, given where we are in the cycle, and you mentioned kind of the market's kind of flat on a trailing 12-month basis, um, you know, people that are still constructive on the equity markets sometimes will suggest you need to get it defensive, however. And, and uh, is that kind of where you are? Are you willing to, to go out a little bit more on the risk and, you know, maybe uh, not necessarily go back into or stay in utilities or REITs or some of those defensive right. sectors? Well, I wouldn't. I think it's a good point. Well, I, I would not be maximum risk on. I'd be somewhere between neutral and halfway to max risk on right now in, in terms of my bullish tilt overall. But I, I I, would not, I don't really favor that you only own defensive stocks right now. I think defensive stocks are overpriced, uh, overpopularized, and probably have a fair amount of risk, at least on a relative basis, if we decide we're not headed for an imminent recession. Jim Paulson, chief investment strategist at Luthold Group, uh, talking to us about why he remains bullish on stocks. Well, as has become the norm, it seems like over uh, the course of the summer, lots of news out of Europe again. Let's start with what's going on in the UK, the, um, the Boris Johnson and the Parliament gambit uh, that he is uh, playing right now in order to try to make uh, the October 31st deadline for Brexit. Let's welcome Alberto Gallo, partner and portfolio manager for the Algebras Macro Credit Fund, uh, also a Bloomberg Opinion opinion columnist joins us from or based in London. Alberto, thanks so much for joining us. First, let's just start with what's going on with the Brexit situation here and Boris Johnson uh, moving to suspend uh, Parliament temporarily. What, what, do you, what do you make of what's going on there? The situation is very confused, uh, uh, even on the ground. Um, there is three to four scenarios here. One of them is, uh, as you know, Parliament is suspended. There can be a no confidence vote. Um, depending on this result, you may have new elections or you may have a continuation of the current government, which then will have to decide whether to negotiate or go into a hard Brexit scenario. Uh, the general view we have is that uh, this is more a symptom, a symptom of the problem than, um, than the cause of the problem. And uh, the issue with the UK is the growth model the country had for the last 20, 30 years, which was importing capital goods and people and exporting services, this growth model no longer works with a united Europe. So the, the UK needs to re-engineer itself. There's too much inequality, um, lack of productivity, and unfortunately, the, the various political parties are, are proposing very quick uh, fixes which are not going to work. So in any case, we see a stagflationary environment. You see inflation going up and growth slowly declining in the UK and some companies are getting hurt. 
So Alberto, I want to talk about, I mean, it's clear that the uncertainty in Europe persists as it does in the US, as it does in China. This is sort of the theme of 2019 uh, and perhaps beyond. But I'm I'm trying to figure out how an investor positions here. And I'm wondering how you can justify lending money to Italy for less than a percent uh, just simply on the hope that they can actually get a government together. (laughs) Please explain. I think the... I think the Italian new coalition is a done deal. Uh, it will be announced, uh, in our view, later today. And uh, it will be a better coalition than what we had before, uh, more moderate with the uh, Democrats and the Five Star Movement um, uni- uniting forces, but potentially less uh, populist economic measures than before. Uh, as you know, the Northern League, um, led by Salvini, wanted to... Uh, not only stop migrants, but also had a very st- a strong stance against the European Union, uh, potentially with the threat of exiting the euro. This is no longer the case. Um, so we have, you know, it's true, we have less than 1% yield on Italian 10-year Gavis, but we have zero on Spain, zero on Portugal, minus 70 beeps on German boons. Uh, and hedged back into euros, you know, the U.S. treasuries also are minus 60 beeps. So you're investing in so, Italy. Um, are you investing in Italian so bonds? We've been, we've been buying in August when the Salvini headlines, the, the, you know, broke the, the coalition uh, and BDPs widened. So we've been buying and uh, we think there's still value compared to everything else. Uh, we don't think the spread of our bonds is... Um, is justifiable uh, compared to zero yield everywhere else. Obviously, we live in a QE infinity world, in in a yield desert. There's no more yield in in anything that's safe. Uh, We see a bit more value in in corporate bonds and in bank bonds than there is in sovereign bonds at the moment. Sovereign bonds are getting to to crazy levels where it's almost better to to buy gold or put your cash under the mattress rather than getting a negative yield. So, Alberto, as you... we, We only buy positive yield bonds here. Right. So, Albert, as you sit back, your fund has about 12.3 billion pounds under management. You obviously think about the macro side of investing. What is just kind of your overall view about Western Europe? I mean, it just seems like there are headwinds everywhere you look. Our view this year has been, and uh, continues to be, of a kick-the-can world, uh, of a world that becomes closer to Japan, where growth and productivity are still positive, but um, more sluggish, where um, companies and banks kick the can um, thanks to dovish monetary policy, but we don't have an acceleration in growth. So we've been buying treasury bonds with positive yield across the US, across Australia, uh, across uh, Europe, uh, across countries where central banks um, have to throw the towel and become more dovish. Uh, we've been buying the bonds of corporates and banks, which are surviving with relatively stronger capital structures. And we've been um, we've been short on small caps, on cyclical equities, on things that basically need a pickup in momentum to do well. And this continues, in, in our view, to be to be a good setup. Um, we think there's more value in corporate uh, bonds rather than uh, sovereign bonds now. Um, but you know, we obviously it does depend on what growth will do, and growth is becoming increasingly fragile right. uh, over the past, become increasingly fragile over the past months. 
Alberto Gallo, thank you so much for being with us. Alberto Gallo is partner and portfolio manager for the Algebris Macro Credit Fund, Algebris Investments, over in London, overseeing 12.3 billion pounds firm-wide. Talking about uh, what is going on over in Western Europe, Italian bond yields falling to all-time lows today. We have a very interesting IPO that will be hopefully coming to the market later this year. Peloton, uh, the, I would call it exercise leisure company coming public, just filed its IPO uh, prospectus. Uh, to help us dig down a little bit deeper, we welcome Drew Singer. Drew's an IPO reporter for Bloomberg News. Uh, Drew, one of the things I noticed when I first opened the S1 was this company, I'm not sure they really know what they are, who they are. Are they a tech company or a leisure company? What, do you, what, do you, what did you see? I think that's the big question. I mean, maybe even the, the $10 billion question, if that's what this IPO ends up valuing the company at, as we hear it might. I mean, you have investors who are going to be spending their Labor Day vacations trying to figure out the, the answer to that exact question. And everybody's going to kind of have their own take. I mean, some people are going to look at this like a, fit, fit, uh, a Fitbit or a GoPro, and their IPOs went, went really badly, if you remember. Other people might see it more like a Canada Goose or a Yeti, and, and their IPOs went, went great. So uh, the bulls and the bears both have a lot of ammo here. I love the soul searching, the sort of kind of language that we use around some of these <laughs> tech IPOs. Yeah. What is this company? It's sort of like WeWork, you know? I mean, Drew, I guess, can we put this in a perspective in, in terms of IPOs in general? How much are the sort of tech darlings. Yes, this is an exercise tech uh, sort of version of it. How different is that from the rest of the industries that try to do IPOs in terms of the sort of soul searching aspect of what they are? It's a good question because some of these companies are so large and they've raised already so much money in both equity and debt that in order for them to be uh, successful in order for them to return money to all of these investors, they need to become massive, just absolutely gigantic, like something out of Black Mirror gigantic. That's what WeWork seems to be talking about, where a million people per city are going to be going to these WeWork offices and, and, and changing their, their vision for the world. Uh, you need the company to be absolutely gigantic. And in order to do that, you don't really know what the company is going to look like at, at that stage in its maturity, just because of how relatively immature the companies are at, at the point of their IPO. Right, which is the reason why we hear things like it's a lifestyle, it's community, it's the concept of life. We are everything to you and you will pay us for it. Exactly. So, Drew, what does this company, let's go ask the easy questions first. Does this company make money? <laughs> no, they don't make money. Uh, and they're, they're very similar to some other large IPs we've seen, like Uber and like WeWork in that regard. They, they are not yet profitable. So this is another really big bet on a company that hasn't yet reached a point where they've figured out how to turn a profit. Well, technology companies coming public that are unprofitable is not necessarily, you know, a new thing. The market's, you know, generally been pretty comfortable with that. But the issue is, can they, do they have a path to profitability that they can really sell to investors? And the reason I ask that is because a lot of tech companies have been able to do that, including the Amazons of the world and the Googles of the world and so on. Um, but some notable companies recently, like Lyft and Uber, have not been able to sell that path to profitability. Uh, what's kind of the early thinking here with um, this Peloton? You're right. And that, that's such an important question because I think people, you know, when, when they're looking for the next big thing in the IPO market, they are thinking about Amazon or, or Google. But the truth is most of these companies 
don't figure it out and, and they don't find a way to become profitable. This filing has been out for less than 24 hours now, so it's still a little too early to say whether or not it's crystal clear or, or more murky in terms of their path to profitability. But you, you can rest assured that the, the coming days and weeks are going to be very, very busy for IPO investors and some other analysts as they try to figure out that, that question. What are they hoping to do with the money that they raise, potentially? Yeah, so let's see here. I mean, th- this uh, they're looking to raise, uh, we don't know exactly how much they're going to raise yet, first of all. Uh, the, the figure, remember, in the initial uh, filing is just a placeholder. Um, but they're pretty vague in the filing about what exactly they're going to use the, the money for. I mean, this is a quote from the filing. We will have broad discretion over the use of the net proceeds in this offering. I mean, they, they talk about, uh, you know, maybe uh, short-term holdings, things like that. But uh, they say the main purpose of the IPO, they're just trying to create financial flexibility. So maybe they're going to turn around and and just support some of that unprofitable growth that they've been having, or maybe they can go uh, make mergers and acquisitions. Uh, They they just call it general corporate purposes, which is that good old-fashioned vague language you see in in some of these IPO filings. Paul, I love it. Just general financial (laughs) flexibility for the owners and the founders who can then go off and go to a beach and drink a pina colada. I mean, to me, I, I think that uh, this is a fascinating story. Do you it use- is. I think it is, too. So it's interesting. We'll have to see how it goes. Uh, Drew Singer, thanks so much for joining us. Drew's an IPO reporter for Bloomberg News, giving us some thoughts on uh, this Peloton IPO. It's one of those companies that, again, I think it's a I think Drew made a great point. Is it a Fitbit kind of company where it's just kind of a one product and if something something else comes along, uh, you kind of lose interest? Or is it more, you know, of a more day-to-day lifestyle type of company like a Yeti, like a, you know, Canada Goose? And I think that's really going to be an issue. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz. One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.